This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Zach Fuss, and today we are breaking down AutoZone, the leading retailer and distributor of auto parts in the Americas. From the outside, AutoZone might look like adult business in a mature industry. But once you dive into the details, you quickly realize it's a hidden gem that echoes the best of Walmart and Costco, earns some of the highest returns on capital and retail, and has a long history of outsized shareholder returns. To help break down the business, I'm joined by Freddie Late, founder and CIO at London-based Latitude Investment Management. Please enjoy this fascinating breakdown of AutoZone. Freddie, thanks so much for joining us to break down AutoZone. It's a fascinating story of a business that's quietly executed on a strategy and had an adept capital allocation. And it's kind of an unsung hero of share cannibalizers given their prolific buybacks. So perhaps a good place to start or set the stage will be just a general summary of the industry, how they interact in the value chain, what the players are, and then we'll go from there. Sure thing. The industry is a very dull sounding industry to begin with. But from an investment perspective, as you rightly outlined, it's been one of the most exciting places to be invested for the last sort of 20, 25 years, and indeed the last five or 10. Broadly, the industry is split into two parts. It's do-it-yourself, so buying auto parts for your car. 80% of that is to fix up an immediate problem with your car. So think of a wiper blade or a battery. And the other 50% roughly is do it for me. So selling to local garages or nationwide garages who will repair your car for you. And as you probably can guess, that's been a slightly increasing part of the pie over the last 10, 20 years. But the DIY business is still growing strongly as well. And I think looking at the kind of outline from the demand side of the industry, what you've got as sort of macro statistics to follow is an ever-increasing car park, more new cars being sold and the average age of cars being higher each year as the cars are built better. So the average sort of miles driven as well is going up by about 1% or 2% a year. The car park itself is going up by 1% or 2% a year. That leads to nearly 3 to 4% underlying addressable market growth. There's a lot of rational pricing, so decent inflation coming through as well. And it's a very predictable market. It's very defensive. And 85% of the sales are essential sales to the consumers, either through the Do It For Me channel or Do It Yourself. And you can predict five or six years out what the market's going to look like because the cars that are addressed by this segment of the market are really those cars that are out of warranty. They're not going to the main dealer channels. You're looking to repair your vehicle elsewhere. Seven years or older is the industry standard for addressable market for these players. So with seven years lead time, you know roughly or pretty accurately what that market's going to look like. And that's also grown sort of two to 3% a year. We're just exiting that period of the cash for clunkers story where they had a huge number of used cars replaced with new cars in 2008-9. And so we're seeing strong growth at the moment. The average age of the car does continue to rise and maintenance costs go up reasonably linearly with that average age of the car. So it costs about $2,000 a year to maintain a car that's got 50,000 miles on the clock, but it costs nearly $4,000 a year to maintain one with 100,000 miles on the clock. So that's, again, a compounding story. And I think when we go through AutoZone in more detail, you'll see there's lots and lots of layers to the story, which compounds up to a great success. 
And that's kind of the demand side. And then from the supply side, you've basically got three national players, AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts, and O'Reilly, three great businesses. They make up about 40% of the market. You've then got 20% through the main dealer channel. So again, those young cars where people are still going back to the place they bought the car to have it serviced, maybe in warranty or just outside warranty. And then 40% of the market is made up of mom and pops with very small chain sizes. And that's really an interesting feature of the future for this market where those mom and pops are being increasingly consolidated or outplayed by the three nationwide players. That's kind of the outline of the structure of the market. That's a really helpful backdrop. I think if we kind of zoom out a bit and compare and contrast the three to four large public players, you have AutoZone that we'll be talking about today, O'Reilly, Advanced Auto Parts, and then to an extent, Napa. Can you just give a high level of how those businesses compare and contrast to one another? They're very similar businesses in many ways. Napa is a little bit more unique because it's more of a franchise model. But the three nationwide players, the other three players you mentioned, are very similar. They're similar in kind of size of stores, five, six, seven thousand stores. Broadly nationwide, Advance doesn't have much of a West Coast presence, but it's driving to amend that at the moment. Advance is slightly more do-it-for-me channel, whereas AutoZone is still more in the do-it-yourself channel. And there's a small difference between the way they sort of own and lease their stores. Other than that, the key difference to note is that for the last 25 years, AutoZone has been a very successful business story. O'Reilly in particular in the last 10 to 15 years has really been hitting its game. And by having a little bit more business going through that Do It For Me channel, which is growing slightly faster, has, has slightly got a lead on AutoZone over the last 10 years, but both very, very solid returns. Advanced Auto Parts has been struggling more in the last five. It may actually be about to exit that period of consolidation, but they're really a merger of sort of four quite distinct entities. They have merged that into sort of two. They're doing more OEM parts. So they are the number one distributor for the branded OEM parts in the US, but really building up that supply chain and building up their warehouse and distribution systems and consolidating that within their business has really distracted for the last three or four years. But other than that, they're three very good businesses with wide margins, high returns on capital, very rational industry pricing, which is key for all three players. And they all sing from a very similar hymn sheet about the macro opportunities as well as the dynamic micro level. The three to four major players are operating an increasingly consolidating industry in auto parts, retail, and distribution. Today, AutoZone, I think, has close to 6,500 stores. Can we just share a little bit about how they started, how they got to where they are today? The history goes back to the late 70s when Malone and Hyde, which was a large, I think a third or fourth largest food wholesaler in the US, when Walmart was coming out and consolidating the grocery market, Malone and Hyde were there as well. The grandson of the founder was called Pitt Hyde. He left college and went and started working in the business. And he started up drugstores. He started up trying to expand into sporting goods. And then he saw a real opportunity in auto parts with the business's permission. It was underneath the parent business. He started a business called AutoShack, which would later be named AutoZone. And he started it very much with that Sam Walton playbook. He actually was on the board of Walmart for seven years. And you can see a lot of the way that Walmart was built in the way that the foundation stones were laid for the AutoZone business. It started with a great sense of purpose. They built deliberately designed DC. Their stores looked completely different to the existing stores at the time, which were dusty and dim and really for auto specialists. They were light. They were everyday low prices. They had great distribution, great availability. And from the word go, 
show great customer service, which is something we'll come back to a lot. But the service element of this business and this industry is one of their greatest barriers to entry. And so within the first year, they launched eight stores in five different states. I think they opened 23 stores in the second year. So a very rapid start for the business. About four years later, KKR led a management buyout of the business, an LBO effectively, and it IPO'd about seven years later. Eddie Lampert was a director from 1999 to 2006. Pitt Hyde retired around the turn of the millennium. And there were a couple of other CEOs who came into place over maybe one or two years. But then they appointed Bill Rhodes in 2005, who is still the current CEO. He was only 40 at the time, so he'll be nudging 65 soon. But he's really been doing that kind of fantastic later stage management of the business. In the early days, there were some acquisitions there. There was a little bit more laying the groundworks, innovation in technology. And what's been fantastic reading through the old reports is you can really see the echoes of what their great strengths are today coming from those seeds they planted all those years ago. So one of the first groups to start doing private label, 1986 is the first time I can find a mention of Duralast, their main private label brand. But they really pushed that, which is something obviously retailers are finding very, very successful as a strategy today. They've always pushed technology. And so they had satellite systems in mid-1990s, which connected their distribution centers to their stores, which was quite a novelty at the time. They gave lifetime warranties on products when no one else would offer it, not even the underlying suppliers of those products, just trying to drive at that customer service. And they've got a million different acronyms for all the sorts of different programs that they have. I might mention some later, but all the way through all of the reports and all of their thinking, it's how can we please this customer? How can we make this customer happy? You know, Do we need to drive 10 minutes to drop the good to the customer's house because they can't start it? Can we go outside the store to fit the good for the customer free of charge? You know, what can we do to really drive that satisfaction? And I think it's been a great success story because those foundation stones were laid so strongly in the 80s and 90s. And really, the job has been one of careful capital allocation since then. The last 15, 20 years, far more a story of consolidation of the industry through steady growth in store count, steady efficiency gains within your business, decent capital management, very, very impressive working capital management, driving a huge share buyback program, which we will mention later, but you mentioned on the introduction as well, which has really resulted in for the last 25, 15, 10 years, this stock has compounded at about 20% a year, driven entirely by earnings per share. It's never really been a very expensive stock, which is one of the, the most attractive things about it. Because it's in such a mature industry, people tend to slightly write it off, but we believe it can carry on delivering those sorts of returns well into the future. So it may not be core to the story, but I think it's an interesting wrinkle that Eddie Lampert and ESL had such a large position. Clearly, they're most well-known among market historians today for their failed effort to consolidate Sears and Kmart and what became of that business. But is there anything more to the ESL interaction with AutoZone? There's not a huge amount to it. It was really a, a great period of change at AutoZone where they pivoted the strategy. And I suppose his oversight as a director was probably a driving force behind that. Prior to his arrival as a director in 1999. It was still about consolidation through acquisition to a degree. They bought up a couple of chains in the three years prior to that. One was maybe 500 stores, which is quite a big acquisition. One was about 200 stores. And they were still spending a lot on CapEx and building out these systems. As the turn of the millennium, they'd already invested sufficiently in technology, and they felt that the time was right for a sort of a pivot in strategy. And so they moved their capital allocation strategy very heavily towards share buybacks. So efficient capital allocation in deploying a new number of stores each year, maintaining and supporting those with distribution capacity and technology, 
but any excess free cash flow going to share buybacks. And I mean, to get to the punchline, I think they had 150 million shares outstanding just before the millennium. And now they've got about 21. So let's spend some time on the unit economics of an AutoZone store. I know that there are some benefits to this business that have been the breadth and the depth of their distribution and their product catalog, but it'd be helpful to understand how big is a store? How much does it cost to build one? What are the sales per store? Just general information so we can get a better context on how the economic model works. So the stores are mostly located as standalone entities. Some are strip malls, but they're all slightly out-of-town locations. So rent tends to be reasonably inexpensive. The stores are about six and a half, seven thousand square feet. And again, for the last 30 years, they were one of the earliest retailers to start using planograms. So the vast majority of the stores are built to plan and fit a model of one of their cookie cutter type stores, which drives their efficiency. They do have hubs and mega hubs and distribution centers, which we'll come on to. And their average store count per year goes up by about 200. They pretty metronomically for the last 10, 15 years have opened 200 stores per year, which is currently 2 to 3% a year. They do it opportunistically, but that's about right. And the CapEx has been reasonably consistent as well at about half a billion dollars a year. So it depends on how you cut the capital spending per store. I think the most interesting way to do it is to cut it through all in. So including that maintenance, central cost, distribution center rollouts, they've been doing a lot more of that recently. So that is included in that CapEx number. I'd estimate only half of it actually goes to the unit economics in terms of actually building out the physical store bases. But even if just for now, we take that total CapEx number 500 and divide it through by the 200 stores, you're kind of spending 2.3, 2.4. It's a little bit under on the CapEx number. Call it $2.5 million per store, all in, including central costs. The revenue per store is nudging $2 million now. It's increased year after year by about 5%. I think it could continue to grow, but it's around $2 million. And they make just a short 20% operating margin. So already that's a 15 16% ROI on the all-in CapEx number, which is supporting obviously the central cost, distribution costs, and improvement in technology and growing out the moat. And I think that's a really nice way to think about the lower end of the returns they're achieving. In reality, I think they're probably closer to double that on a unit economics basis. And indeed, the group on an invested capital level, so including debt and capitalized leases, generates nearly a 40% ROIC. So it's a very, very high return business. For the last 20 years, they've made occasional reference to a 15% after-tax hurdle target for returns on, on capital investment. And the second thing to make the point on this really quite heavily costed return on capital point is this is in year one. Every year after that, densities continue to drive, like-for-likes continue to drive higher, capital gets depreciated. And so you do have another one of these arcs of exponential compounding growth in that return from the asset base they're building out. And I think it's only right to include the central costs in many ways, because that's really one of their barriers to entry, as you highlighted that distribution setup. I hope it stands out how outrageous a 40% ROIC capitalizing leases and considering all the other additional costs in a way that you're encumbering them is relative to anything else in retail. I mean, what else ranks close to that even? Some of the restaurant stocks can rank similarly to that. So if you look at a unit economics for something like Starbucks, it's one of the highest, if not the highest in the group. And you can probably get a 60% unit economics out of a Starbucks store in a successful location where I think you might be getting 45 from an auto zone. That's excluding any central cost. So that's not a comparable argument to the one I just made here. Starbucks is still investing a huge amount elsewhere as well. So nothing in retail, some other store-based concepts are up there, but AutoZone has been a standout and it's been a standout for many years. 
it's always had that capital discipline. And ever since I invested in the company first in 2009, I've been a shareholder ever since. Ever since I can remember, Bill Rhodes has said on all the earnings calls, we carefully consider where we invest our capital because it's our investors' capital. That is how they think about it. The management team are large shareholders. They're driving that per share, unit economics per share, return on capital per share, free cash flow and earnings growth to their benefit and ours. So that's really helpful. Maybe we should spend some time trying to flesh out how exactly those returns are driven. So maybe to start, just a basic use case and how the customer interacts with AutoZone. There's two ways. There's do it yourself and do it for me. So let's go take the do it yourself category, which is 75% of AutoZone's business still to date. There's a major growth push to in the commercial channel, but at the moment, the majority of their business is still do it yourself. So in this instance, you live locally to a store, and that is one of the key reasons why you choose over the large three or a local independent is locality. Something goes wrong with your car. 85 to 90% of the time, it's something that's gone wrong and needs immediate fixing because either it's essential and the car won't work without it, or because you really want it to be fixed now. It's something that is broken. And you drive into the store, you park, you walk into the store within 30 seconds where they have a stop, drop, 30, 30. That's the first of the acronyms or sayings that I'm going to tell you, where someone has to come up to you, talk to you within 30 seconds or 30 feet of entering the store. They do that. They come up, they try and address your problem. They've got an incredible database of solutions so they can look up your car through a registration number or a make and model. They can find the exact part. They've nearly always got the exact part because inventory availability is a very, very major barrier to entry in this space too. If you've driven five miles to the store to try to find that one wiper blade or connector and they don't have it, it's unlikely you'll go back. Inventory turnover is actually very low, but they tend to have what you need in store at that point. They will come, they will help you fit it if they can. They will help give you advice on how to fit it. They'll lend you a tool if it's a slightly harder job, free of charge for 72 hours if you need to take it home and fit it yourself. They will try to do everything to make that journey easier for you. Most of the order sizes are reasonably small. I think the average ticket's about $35. That tends to be the customer journey. Very quickly turning in, finding out what they need, getting what they need on the shelf, getting some help with fitting it or advice on how to and leaving as quickly as possible. You look through the financials of a business like AutoZone and what really stands out are the gross margins at 55%. Businesses like Walmart are closer into the 20s. Retail is generally a little bit higher than that, but it's clearly a standout. What is it the nature of what they're selling that allows them to earn such a high gross? I believe it's the fact that they're not just selling you a part. They are including this service. And by having that availability, that's selling you a part when you know you're going to get it, which is really quite difficult. They have hundreds of thousands of SKUs and all different makes and models of cars. So knowing you've got the part availability, knowing it's local to you, I forget the statistic, but something like 90% of the population lives within 10 miles of an AutoZone store. That is a huge, huge benefit to the customer. And you're able to extract a little bit more in a gross profit sense for that benefit. It's interesting to see gross profits have been rising pretty steadily. Over the last 25 years, they're up maybe 40%. But realistically, over the last 15, 15 years, they're up 3 or 4%. So they're just steadily ticking up a little bit through probably supplier efficiency. But I think around that 50% level is where they're due to stay. And they deserve to stay because the customers are very, very satisfied with the results they get. They're not just buying the part for the cheapest price. They're buying it for that service and availability. So clearly, when you advertise 50% plus gross margins, it attracts competition. We know about their adjacent competitors in O'Reilly and Advanced Auto, which we talked about. But it seems like there have been other attempts, whether it be e-commerce, local retailers, you name it. 
how have they staved off the competition? Let's take the easy one first. I think other general retailers attempting to do auto parts as a subservice or a concession within their stores really has failed over the years. And I think it comes down to that specialist knowledge. The dozen or so people that work in an AutoZone store have specialist knowledge, understand how to use the systems, understand generally they're really interested in cars and they're able to help you and take you through that journey. So I think it comes down to the service more than the availability point or pricing on that one. And then obviously, e-commerce is an outstanding threat. They all have e-commerce businesses now. I think 90% of the parts are available for next day delivery, which is better than Amazon still. It's a difficult industry to do e-commerce. It's not high turn inventory assets. Often they have one or two SKU depths in their store. So you need a very wide range and you don't sell any individual product with high frequency. And the second one is some of the parts are difficult to transport, selling oil and selling things like that, selling liquids, selling wiper fluid, and selling brake fluid. That's slightly harder and very expensive to ship. Batteries, which are a really key driver for these businesses, one of the largest categories, if not the largest category. You can't really ship a battery economically or at least at a price that they're willing to sort of pay. So I think while e-commerce is likely to grow as a percentage of sales for the group, I do think that it's going to grow much more slowly than other areas. If you look at their own initiatives, you can now go onto their store on their mobile app. They give you perks and they give you discounts to try to use their app. There you can enter your reg number. You can find all the parts that you need. It digs into their own data system. People still aren't doing it. At best, they're doing buy online, pick up in store. That delivery doesn't come with service. Delivery driver is not going to give you that tiny bit of advice on how to fit it. And I think that is still a really big barrier to entry in this industry. One of the other things I learned in studying the business and interacting with it, given their exposure to do it yourself, you're not always dealing with people that perhaps have the know-how or the education, and they have a program to offer the tooling that may be needed. Can you talk a bit about how that would work and how that serves as an additional opportunity in their competitive advantage? Yeah. So they have two real systems that are very beneficial in that sense. The first is an engine diagnostic system. So increasingly cars have an electric operating system and it's very helpful. You obviously can't test that at home in most cases. So you can go in and have that diagnosed generally free of charge, but they will also lend you a tool. So if you have a small DIY job at home and you don't want to buy the tool for it, I think for 72 hours, you put down a small deposit. It's free of charge if you return it within 72 hours, as long as you buy the parts from AutoZone to to do the work. So that's another thing that they've done, which isn't really available anywhere else. And I think it's just great initiatives like that that drive that loyalty. And that's more for the hardcore DIYers who are working on their cars on weekends as either a hobby or maybe even a kind of small-time local mechanic who does a bit in his spare time. That's the kind of benefit to that more extreme end of the DIY market. So there are two ways really to drive a high return on capital. It's either to have wide margins or to have high capital turnover. Most of the most reputable retailers tend to have low margins and high turnover. And this is somewhat of the opposite approach. The inventory turnover here is quite low. And the way they do it in such a capital efficient way seems truly unique to the business. Can you spend some time explaining that? That's exactly the right characterization. This specialty retail is almost inverse to that general retail model of stack it high, sell it cheap, sell it frequently. It's a real barrier to entry. That really is something that needs to hit home to the listeners. Having this huge assortment available whenever customers need it is hard to do in terms of merchandising and supplying. It's great because it's long-lived inventory. It generally doesn't go out of stock. You don't have obsolescence of that inventory. So you can afford that wide margin through exceptional customer service, which we've touched on. 
And then you can drive great efficiencies through the store level, great efficiencies as you consolidate and grow, improving that operating margin, driving up that ROIC from that side of things. The capital employed side, there is one other thing that they've done incredibly well, which is to maintain a zero or almost, it has been negative actually for the last 10 years, working capital position. And so the inventory in the business is actually very high. The physical in-store stock and in the distribution centers, it's very high, very wide-ranging, luckily low obsolescence. But their net working capital due to the high level of payables is negative by about 10 days of sales outstanding negative working capital position, which means as you grow, when you're doing that store level math that I talked about earlier, you don't need to stock the store with cash. You put physical items into it, but you don't need to include them in your capital calculation because you're not actually outlaying the cash for them. And obviously receivables, there's very, very low levels of receivables on the balance sheet because most customers pay a point of sale. Given the amount of times inventory turns around one time a year, I imagine given the long catalog and SKU count they have, there'll be times where inventory isn't where it needs to be. How do they manage the business locally and regionally to make sure that the parts are where they need to be when they need to be there? In stocks are very, very important at a local level, but also at a central level, DC level. So they've spent a lot of time in the last five years analyzing the optimal drop-offs, whether it's once a week in terms of returns on time, return on capital, whether it's three times a week, five times a week, and they believe they've got to that level. And in the same way that they centralize their main buying decisions at the DC level, they give a lot of flexibility to the general managers through a flexogram plan to stock what they need in their stores according to local data sets on car types, car ages, and and their experience in sales to date. So there is a little bit of flexibility. There is a little bit of localization in what they stock. And there's a lot of frequent top-ups of inventory coming from their hubs and from their mega hubs and from their DCs. So they have a great network of inventory that they can spread it around where it's needed most. It's a huge competitive advantage, taking that inventory off balance sheet for the garages, maintaining that inventory there, readily available in the local community for the DIYers. It's been 25, 30 years in the making getting this model right, but they're very good at it. And despite the recent supply disruptions, seem to be managing in stocks very, very well. The thing that's quite unique here for a retailer is that supplier finance that you alluded to. Can you just talk about the mechanics of how something like that works for a retailer just to better understand it? Something that we always look for in in businesses in terms of looking at that competitive advantage and moat is some of the sort of Porter's Five Forces type arguments. And we've been through customer economics, but suppliers are very plentiful in this industry. There's a huge number of suppliers. No one supplier makes up more than I think 10, maybe 15% of sales now. But they buy from a huge number of people. And increasingly, as they buy private label and not OEM brand, but other brands, they can dual source as well. So they have a huge amount of power over their supplier base to a large degree, their vendors. And what they put in place probably 15, 20 years ago was a sort of vendor financing program. Effectively, they will pay you, the supplier, on a very delayed payment term, but they will guarantee that payment to such a degree that you can then go factor those receivables very, very easily for yourself. They can get the cash at a sort of auto-zone credit rating, if you like, from a bank or from some other provider of their financing. So they're able to get the cash flow that they need to run their business effectively with that auto-zone guarantee, but AutoZone is still able to sit with the cash on their balance sheet when they need it for this expansion and, and maintain lower levels of capital deployed. It's employed across the industry now, and I've seen it in other industries too. It was AutoZone where I first came across that model, and it's been very beneficial to driving that compounding thread through higher returns on capital and incrementally more capital deployed each year through CapEx, but not through working capital. 
example after example of the efficiency that they drive in the business. One of the things that most struck me was the operating margin expansion that they've pushed over the last, call it 20 years. This is a business that at the turn of the millennium was doing 10% operating margins today, closer to 20. I imagine private label had a lot to do with that. Duralast being their most notable brand. But can we talk about some of the private label programs that they've been successful with? The operating margin expansion has been fantastic. As you said, for the last 20 years, it's nearly doubled. It did have a strong ramp up in that transition phase that I explained when they stopped going from sort of acquisition-led growth to investment in the business and capital returns in sort of 2002, 2003. Margins were probably closer to 15% at the end of that process. And so they've come, drifted up steadily towards 19 today. But private label has been a major contributor to that. And Duralast is a fantastic brand. And again, this is something that we're seeing across the retail landscape now, people coming out and trying to drive their private label penetration. Brands have existed for many, many years, but have extracted a huge amount of economic rent for a product that may be of no greater quality. And when it comes down to it, one of the most important things in business is distribution. These guys collectively, but AutoZone specifically, own the distribution of auto parts in the US and in Mexico. We haven't talked about their international expansion. They're growing there a lot too. But they are in control of that distribution. And at the end of the day, if they can push through and capture more margin from vertical integration of the product manufacturing into their own distribution alongside a product of equal quality, but maybe 20 to 30% higher price from an OEM, some people will still prefer the OEM parts, and that's absolutely fine, or the other national brands. But a huge number of people go towards these private label products, which are cheaper, yet a higher contribution margin to the business. And when you build a, an own brand like Duralast, in a small way, it's sort of comparable to Kirkland at Costco, where it's a huge brand equity. It has its own brand equity. It drives people in to try to buy products from that brand because it has a great quality to it. So the halo effect of private label, which is the antithesis of, I think, how people saw it 15 or 20 years ago, where it was seen as this really cheap option, the, the, the option if you can't afford the main brand. Again, these guys were innovators by pushing out Duralast in the late 1980s. They really were ahead of the game on it. And I think it's just paying dividends now because you've got a whole generation who's grown up with that brand. When you think about a business like auto parts retail, people know obviously windshield wipers and oil changes, but there are certain categories that are core to the business that are failure-oriented parts. What is it exactly that they're selling? As I said, failure and maintenance really make up sort of 80 to 90% of the sales they make. Failures could include batteries and accessories to batteries, obviously bearings and belts. You can look at certain ignition pumps, fuel pumps, fuses, any of these sorts of pieces that actually, without which you can't get the mechanism of the car working. Those are the sort of failure, failure categories where you need it right now. In terms of the sort of maintenance, it's coming into winter, needing more antifreeze. It's needing some paint or some sensors or some transmission fluid, which may be running low, may not be driving an actual failure in the mechanical operations of the car, but you still will really need it to run properly. These are slightly more technical jobs, obviously, than fitting a wiper blade, but that's the majority of the categories into which they sell within those failure and maintenance categories. They are the most important drivers for them. The discretionary category includes things like point of sale, food and drinks, which is probably a few percentage points of their sales just at the counter. And then it's things like wax and washing materials, floor mats, covers, steering wheel covers, things like that, air fresheners, truly discretionary items. Anything else is included in the failure and maintenance categories. And then AutoZone is obviously known for their DIY mix relative to some of their competitors, but they're starting to take more share in the pro or the do-it-for-me division. How is management thinking about what are the key drivers and 
transitioning towards more opportunity in DIFM. Yeah. So this is another great example of the culture within the business. For the last 25 years or since inception, really, it's been a DIY focused business. And DIY is clearly growing less rapidly than DIFM. Potentially, it one day will slow down and, and start retreating. And so for the last five years, they've been talking to shareholders steadily about, we need to transition to having more commercial programs within our existing stores. It's very common and definitely the right model to service the local garages on a do-it-for-me basis from the same store as you do DIY. They've done this through a number of initiatives, which they really did outline in a lot of detail. And they were looking at a mega hub and hub strategy. So a normal store has 25,000 SKUs and maybe six, 7,000 square feet. A hub is 50% bigger with 100% more SKUs and a mega hub is 100% bigger with four times as many SKUs. And these different hubs in different places, they tested different delivery frequencies, they tested inventory availability, they delivered to certain stores five times, three times a week. And they showed us the results of these and came out with what they believe is the optimal mix. I mean, it's nothing too insightful, but they really spent years getting that mix right for their commercial programs, whilst ensuring that wherever they laid out a commercial program, which are now in about 80, 85% of their stores, there was sufficient demand for it. They've been really pushing commercial for the last two or three years. It's growing at 20% a year against a market that's maybe growing closer to five. So they're having great success. They're winning contracts. They're winning being first call to that local garage. Because quite often the guys in the garage will use a number of people. You need to be the first person they call. And that's what they're really pushing for. And they're driving it again with service. Again, they have local vans. The, the guys in the shop will drop it off at the point of ordering. I believe they're still doing this where if you're not quite sure which part you need, because if you put yourself in the mind of the mechanic, what drives your business model? It's getting a car into the bay, turning it quickly, fixing it quickly, and getting it out. That's your asset turn right there. If there's one part, one belt, one battery, one light, one fuse that's holding you up, you can't finish your job. And so maybe sometimes overordering and then sending back the ones you don't need can really speed up your job. And I believe they're still doing that. And so I think it's applying that service mentality alongside preempting it with exceptional in inventory availability and delivery speed, larger stores, which maybe carry larger number of SKUs. So you're moving up that first call and now really building up that sales force to push into that commercial channel. It's been a number of years in the making, but I think the time they've taken gives them a much greater chance of success in that market. And I can't see why in time they couldn't be 50% of their sales. So we see that as one of the most exciting angles for the business over the next five to 10 years is growing slightly faster into that slightly faster growing channel, driving better top line and ultimately better EPS progression too. And maybe it makes sense just to talk about how a professional auto body shop buys from O'Reilly and AutoZone in that I assume they don't use the same retailer for all the products. And I know about the call list, how do you move up and down the call list? What is it that they're competing on? I think a little bit of it is price, but not a huge amount. As you can see from these gross margins, this business is not a highly price sensitive business. And I think, if, again, if you get into the mind of that garage worker, this is a very small part of the job, a couple of pieces. Maybe for some of the really large hard parts, price matters a little bit more. And we certainly see that in a slightly lower margin contribution, gross margin contribution from Do It For Me. But in the smaller parts, I think it's very similar. So it comes down to availability. It also comes down to habit. In the same way that proximity drives a lot of local DIY sales, probably going to use the store that's roughly equally as good if it's five miles away, not the one that's 20 miles away. 
the same thing kind of comes down to this. If you've habitually been using O'Reilly, AutoZone have to prove that they have better in-stock, better pricing on some of the large hard parts or some of the own brands. If some of these own brands or availability of OEM parts is only coming through your channel, that also helps drive some of that customer loyalty. The other key thing to mention is that obviously effectively the role these guys play in turn for their customers in the DIFM segment is to keep that inventory off balance sheet. In one sense, these guys could have a business model where they had to keep all of these parts in their own inventory and utilize them as and when they could to try to turn their base faster. But instead, the major players say, no, you don't have to. We'll keep it all. We'll keep our stocks high and we'll keep it wide. And whenever you need it, you can have it almost instantaneously. But for that, you do have to pay a 50% gross margin. And that's perfectly acceptable to them because of the economics of the size of the job and the price of the labor that they put through on top of it. So we see it as a very, very solid market for them to grow into where the underlying financials, returns on capital, underlying margin structures shouldn't change dramatically. And actually, if it works, what you'll see coming through is in particular for AutoZone out of the three of them is a much greater pickup in density because you're serving another customer base from the same store the same capital base. Yes, you may need more inventory, but as we've discussed, that's a zero cost to you in cash terms. So from your capital and maybe a little bit more labor, but from a similar labor base, you could be driving far higher sales, maybe with a slightly lower gross margin, but a much higher contribution margin to the bottom line because your commensurate pickup in SGNA is much lower. So we see it as a very exciting business. And so maybe this is a good time to transition the conversation towards some of the competitive pressures that auto parts can potentially face in a world where cars are becoming increasingly electrified and complex. How is that going to potentially impact the business? The threat from electric vehicles is clearly the biggest bear case in this space. Other than that, I think everything is ticking along very nicely and you can paint a very positive picture. But we believe you can too, despite the positive news flow around EVs and the success that the EV makers are having to date. And this boils down to a few points. The first one is that EVs are still a very small percentage of the annual sales of new cars. Full EVs are 5 to 10%, depending on how you count them, and growing rapidly. Don't forget, this industry and this stock particularly, they service cars that are seven years old or older. And so what you have to say to have a bear case over the next, say, decade is, well, okay, over the next three years, how much will the sales of EVs impact the car park in seven years' time from there, i.e. 10 years' time? And the truth is, no matter what numbers you put through, the car park, and in particular, the car park of seven-year-old cars or older, is going to grow. And it should grow to 3% a year. And these businesses can carry on driving like-for-like growth on top of that. So at least for the next decade, we can see industry growth. Beyond that, actually, you can still see a reasonable probability of high levels of industry growth, even with a higher EV penetration of 30 or 50%, just because of that weight, that duration, that kind of predictability of the addressable market for the cars. I think that's really key. And that's the first point to make. The second point to make is that there is still a lot of consolidation to go in this industry. They are steady. They grow very nicely. They've generated 30, 40% ROICs and they've grown earnings per share at 20% a year for the past 25, 10, 15 years, however you want to look at it. But over that period, since 1995, I think, they've taken their DIY share from 7% to 14%. The market's grown, they've grown share, but they grow steadily. So at the moment, the three largest players, well, three and a half, four largest players make up 40% of the market. 40% of the market is still independents who are much, much smaller. And we've seen a huge number of doors closing in the US in the last 
two years, some meaningful proportion of those, by our maths, we'd estimate almost 1,000, 750, maybe 1,000 auto parts stores that have closed and won't reopen. That allows for a bit of a bump in the short term in terms of market share growth. But we believe that over time, a very, very large portion of that unconsolidated piece of the market, the sales will move into the hands of the larger consolidating players. So even if the market doesn't grow from here, there's room to double your sales. If the market carries on growing as we know it will to a large degree from the car park maths over the next decade, your sales could be up 150%. That's before inflation. And I think another read on that gross margin point that we've made a couple of times this call is the gross margins are very high. This is not a price-sensitive industry, and they will be able to push through meaningful inflation if inflation remains steady. So nominal returns could actually move up even higher. So we see it as very attractive. And I think this bear case has been around for a long time. And I would highlight the 1991 annual report to anyone who is digging into the stock in a little bit more detail, because it was around their IPO. And they put out a note talking about two different publications, which had two extreme bear cases saying, you know, with the complexity of cars, no one's going to be doing any more DIY and the average American man can't handle what's going on under the hood anymore. And they were articles from 1908 and from 1968, 10 years before he even founded the business. And I think this story has been around for a while. It doesn't mean we're complacent, but I think when you work the maths through, there's a huge runway for growth for these businesses. And frankly, when a major source of capital return and value creation is through buybacks. I'm very happy if the market continues to trade these stocks at a discount due to this concern. And then the second arrow in the quiver of the bear thesis would probably be online pure plays and then Amazon impacts every specialty retailer. I know that it's been a debate that's been both disproven and then others would argue proven over time. But how do you consider the risk of an Amazon or an Amazon type behemoth coming into the space in a meaningful way? There's going to be more e-commerce penetration. It's been picking up a little bit in the last few years. There was a huge concern in 2017 that Amazon was going to come along and had been really driving in the auto parts space, but they actually didn't manage to make any inroads at that point. And that's not to write off Amazon. It's quite a good business. So I think they'll probably be trying again in the future. But I think it depends on how you look at the business. And I take the levels of margin, the sustainable levels of growth, and the incredible high ROICs as a sign that people are paying for something other than the goods. They're not just buying the battery. They're coming into the store and they're getting that service. They're getting that instant availability. And I think only 5 or 10% of Amazon's products are available same day or next day. They're still mostly two-day delivery. Now, that can change. So of course, they can move to same day or next day delivery on some of these very heavy, expensive to transport parts, stock the huge wide level of SKUs that you need to have. And they can have the same setup where you enter your registration number, your plate, and it tells you what sort of product you need. Perhaps for some people that will win out, but that is a much lower level of service. I just do believe that when 85% of your category sales are for failure and maintenance, it's all people locally coming to buy it because they need it now and they get that service alongside it. It's going to be a much slower transition to online than elsewhere. And these guys have every right to compete in that as the specialty retailers with well-invested online e-commerce of their own. They already have the DCs. They already have the trucks driving around. They already have mega hubs where they could do local distribution from. So they have hub and spoke built out already. And even if e-commerce does penetrate faster than we'd anticipate, I think there'll be meaningful players in that marketplace. I don't think we've spent enough time talking about how truly amazing the capital allocation of this business is. 
clearly any business has the opportunity to either reinvest in their business, organic growth or acquisition. They could buy back stock, repurchase debt, or pay a dividend. These guys have taken a pretty unique approach to capital allocation. And I think it's important to spend a lot of time talking about it. Ultimately, the way that shareholders make money is capital gets returned. Can you talk a bit about tax this business has taken to return capital to shareholders? I mean, I think buybacks are still contentious with some investors, whereas we see them as highly attractive arrows in the quiver of the capital allocation team, the CEO and his team. In this instance, it's one of the best examples of how to use it in a mature yet growing industry, where if you manage all the other levers of your business well and intelligently, including your capital allocation, your working capital allocation, your in-store efficiency, and invest everything you need to invest first in building out your competitive position. So whether that's technology, whether that's starting your own own brand, whether that's training your staff to be absolutely customer focused, building out your online presence when required, testing and building out your distribution setup to enhance your commercial business. Spend every penny you can on just defending your existing business model and enhancing it. But everything that's left after that efficiency, reinvest back in your own business through share buybacks. It's been a phenomenally successful story. It's hard to do the analysis, but we've worked through it a number of ways. And they've made at least a 20% return on capital on the actual investments they've made in their own business, which is very, very solid over time. And the effects as a shareholder are huge. If you're one of the few shareholders who holds on through this period, the actual level of absolute net income over the last 25 years has gone from just over $200 million, $250 million to, well, we think it'll be reaching two and a half billion, so 10 times that in the next few years. And the share counts down by nearly 90%. And this is the funny one about the compounding power of things on the upside, people understand. But the compounding power of things when you're reducing the number, it seems to lose people because a 90% reduction in share count obviously doesn't drive a 90% pickup in EPS. It drives a 10 times pickup in EPS. So a 10 times pickup in net income and a 10 times pickup from the buyback maths has driven 100%, 100 times pickup in earnings per share in our view over the past 25 years and looking out the next few. They used to make $1.50. We think they'll be making $150 in the next few years per share. That's the power of it. And this business still has a reasonable level of debt. It's not over-indebted. It has a fantastically invested asset base. It has a great and motivated team. It's playing into a market that is still growing defendably and predictably for the next decade. It has been a fantastic use of capital. And you could have made 100 times your money if you knew about this in 1998. Yeah. Just looking at the market cap today of the business, close to $40 billion. I believe that they've retired, but they took the share count from 125 to 25. If you think about the pure dollar amount that they've repurchased over the course of the last 20 years relative to today's market cap, the numbers are pretty striking. It's been a huge, huge story for these guys, and it'll continue. We use it as a use case for other stocks when we're engaging with management teams. We show them this. There's no shame in retiring some of your stock. In fact, quite the opposite. You can generate superior outcomes. The alternatives available in slow growth industries like this are excessive acquisitions or potentially excessive pricing, which drives customers away, or not investing to try and drive efficiencies in your business, but actually therefore eroding your moat. This makes the behavioral side of it much, much better. And also buybacks have this wonderful behavioral piece, which is that they allow management teams to make the right decision at all times. They're not looking at EPS every year. They're not looking at one single metric. They're looking at long-term value creation. And they know that if the share price falls for any given reason, 
that will accrue more value to them when they buy back shares. So they can tell the truth. They can be more frank with their investors when times are good and times are bad because the share price moves don't affect them in the same way. In fact, a negative share price move in this stock is pleasing for long-term shareholders because you tend to buy back more stock at that point. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the COVID impacts on the business. Clearly, durable categories are seeing massive demand pull forwards. We're seeing prices in used automobiles skyrocket, which I presume is good for the business in the short term. How are you thinking about the COVID benefits and detriments to the business over the short term and the longer term? Yeah, I've tried to steer away from the short term, but the short term is incredibly exciting. And it's been a great benefit to this industry and this business in particular. Do-it-yourself has been a huge, huge category of growth for them. And it's really helped supercharge their commercial business as well. Comps last year were very strong in the end. I think AutoZone's got a slightly funny financial year, but it's, it did a sort of 8% comp, whereas an average would be sort of 2 to 3%, sort of like-for-like sales. They tend to do well in recessionary periods. People fixing up their car instead of buying a new car, driving more instead of taking public transport or trains, things like that. So we would have expected in any ordinary recession, but this is obviously not an ordinary recession, to see a pickup in same-store sales. That started coming through. And then we saw this sort of supercharged same-store sales coming back through. As is now clear, the consumer is far wealthier than they would have been. Household net worth is up 30% from the lows in March 2020. It took about six years to recover that level in the financial crisis when we had austerity as the result. So fiscal tightening instead of fiscal loosening. And this has been a huge boon for all consumer stocks. And yes, you're dead right. In turn, it's driven up the price of used cars, I think 35% from trend. And that in itself drives volumes, people buying more cars, selling more cars. At the point you buy a car, it's similar with houses. You tend to put a lick of paint on it, or you sell it, you wash it, you wax it before you sell it, fix it up a little bit to sell. There's been a real pickup from that. So some of it feels like it could have been sort of one-offs. There's certainly, you won't see this as a continued level of growth, but I think you do see the, the trend having jumped up and will accelerate from there still in the future. Because again, all these categories, all these items, they are needed day in, day out. They're mostly there to repair something that's broken. People haven't suddenly fast-tracked that. And the final one was a lot of cars were idled in the lockdowns. And so when you came out of lockdowns, battery sales were huge because they'd gone flat and people just wanted to replace them because they hadn't replaced one for a while. So COVID's been a huge boon from the demand side, but an even bigger boon, if I can get even more excited, from the supply side, because I'm afraid this has been a difficult time to get parts for people. It's been a difficult time to find financing. It's been a difficult time to find staff. And that's for large firms. But the larger firms have found a way through that. And AutoZone has absolutely found a way to maintain in stocks, to maintain staffing levels while still looking after their team. But the smaller chains, I'm afraid, are going to struggle much, much more in that dynamic. Sourcing parts, if your order size is smaller, is just going to be preferenced on allocation to the larger clients. And finding staff and finding teams and having that ability to pay higher minimum wages or higher skilled wages for manager level people. It's something that is only really there for the larger players. So I think the demand side is very high at present and will probably likely be so for the next few years, given the level of household net worth. And the supply side has gone massively in their favor as well, because that consolidation will speed up from here. The greatest thing about that one is that actually they probably don't need to open a store for every store that goes out of business, because a lot of the sales will come to them collectively as a group anyway. So it should be a huge boon for densities and therefore efficiencies at a business level. 
but it does give them more opportunity to spend more capital, which is something we're always keen to see in heroic businesses too. Awesome. And the final question we ask is, given your studies and time you've spent with this business as a shareholder of record for many years, what have you learned from both an investor's perspective and an operator's perspective that can be taken away from the AutoZone story? This stock's taught me a lot of things. It's been a long-term shareholding of mine. I think the few things that stand out are get a deep understanding of your business, the competitive environment in which it operates, the customers. The customer economics is key. You've asked a few questions around that. I think that's absolutely key. And really distribution. Distribution is true for every industry, whether it's podcasts, auto parts, investment management. You need to look at how this business truly distributes and what it really sells. It's not just selling a battery. It's selling a service and inventory availability. So I think digging into that competitive environment, which is often ignored because it's so qualitative and so hard to really pin down. I think that's something we do on every stock and sector we now look at, really understanding that. I think culture is something that can often be quite dismissed. And often when you hear about culture, it's in some Harvard Business Review write-up or something along those lines. And actually, it can ring the bell of the top of that culture and it can be much worse than it sounds underneath. This is a company that doesn't really champion their own culture in too many sort of press reviews. It's a bottom-up way of trying to lend their service a better hand and then make sure that their staff are well-trained to look after customers. And that's what culture really means to this business on the floor. And in the C-suite, it's obviously much more around that capital allocation. And I think this is the business that has taught me the benefits of buybacks as a shareholder. It's something we look for, not in every industry, many industries, it would be a poor idea to be doing buybacks, but industries that are categorized with wide moats, explicable and demonstrable trends in the underlying business, these mature sounding industries are ripe for buybacks. And I think this business has demonstrated that the best it can. And the final one, I think, is to when you're faced with a bear case, you know, we're very long-term in, in the way we think and the way we invest, but bear cases come along a lot. You should be challenged by them. You can't be dismissive of them. But likewise, you have to look through your own modeling, your own numbers, your own expectations. And I think if you've done that qualitative work on the structure of the industry, and you understand how they're going to deploy capital, you have the ability at least to look through bear cases where it's right. And I think the EV threat and the online threat are real and present and dangerous, but we understand them. We believe, famous last words, and we believe that this business can manage very, very well through them for the next decade and beyond. And I think having that kind of willingness to think slightly differently comes from that understanding of, frankly, a very simple business in a very simple industry just executed really, really well. Well, Freddie, this was fantastic. A fascinating story of continuing to execute and being incredible capital allocators. And if you run your business incredibly well and allocate capital well, the returns to shareholders are generally fantastic. So thanks for taking the time. That was great. Thank you very much. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 